0: What a great truth we just sang about. That's why we're gathered here today. What a wonderful cross. We are here to worship our God and Savior who died on that cross, who rose again, and who drew us to himself with his grace, that we might put our faith in him, believe, have our sins forgiven, and have everlasting life. Praise the Lord. Last week, we began a series in the book of Acts. Uh, We have some Bibles that will i be happy to pass around. If you need a Bible, go ahead and raise your hand. We do open the Word of God. We look at it. We study it. We read verse by verse through each passage, and that's what we're going to do this morning. So Acts chapter 1 is where we began, and that's where we left off. Just to remind you of a few things, where we last left off, Jesus made a promise and issued a command to the apostles. His promise was that not many days from now, the Holy Spirit will come and baptize the believers. And that baptism would bring power to the people to be witnesses of his resurrection. And that's where the command comes in. Because as he's promising that the Holy Spirit will come, Jesus says the Holy Spirit will baptize them, giving them power to do what? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. He says, And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth, that represents an ever-widening circle of ministry and missions. They were in Jerusalem. That's where we're going to pick up when they're in Jerusalem. The first third or so of the book of Acts takes place ministering in and around Jerusalem. Then Judea, Samaria. Uh, Judea was an area, a region in which was Jerusalem. So they minister in Jerusalem. That's their starting point. They go to Judea, and then they spread out to Samaria, another region further up north. Now they're going further and further away from that center point and then to the very ends of the earth. And we'll see them reaching the ends of the earth through people from Ethiopia, people from Spain, and all over the place uh, in the book of Acts. But the disciples were commanded to stay where you're at and, and wait for the Holy Spirit to baptize them, empower them to be these witnesses of the resurrection of the risen Christ. And that's where we pick up the text today. Jesus ascends to heaven after giving them this promise, giving them this command, and now they wait. What do you do while you wait? We're going to see what the apostles did. Let's pick up the text in verse 12. Acts chapter 1, verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. What were the apostles and other believers doing while they waited for the Holy Spirit to come? They were praying. They prayed. Now, we're going to come back to that thought in just a minute. There are a few details I want us to set up in the context surrounding what the apostles were doing. First, I want you to notice where the apostles are coming from. It says, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, a Sabbath day journey away. A Sabbath day journey was a a little more than half a mile. That was the maximum distance a Jewish person was allowed to travel on the Sabbath, according to the rabbis. It doesn't mean that they were meeting on the Sabbath. It means this is the distance between one place and the other. Now, what's more important, I think, is that they were coming from, it says, the Mount of Olives. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that that's a very significant site. In the Old Testament, Zechariah, the prophet, chapter 14, tells us that one day the Lord is going to return to the Mount of Olives. And that mount will be split in two. He'll have all of his holy ones with him, and he'll begin the end time stuff that we read about. We're not going to get into all of that here. Now, it was a significant site because that's where the Jewish people expected God to come. And that's the spot where Jesus ascended. And that's the spot where Jesus said, I'm coming back the same way that you saw me go. These kinds of little details kind of remind us of those Old Testament promises and set us up to expect that we are going to see Jesus fulfilling these very promises even within the book of Acts. Now, second, it says in verse 13 that when the disciples entered Jerusalem, they went to the upper room. Notice that, not an upper room. It's very specific, isn't it? They went to the upper room, the upper room. Like like Luke, the author is, is thinking of a very specific room that his readers know very well. Now, unfortunately, we're not exactly sure which upper room he's talking about. There's actually a couple different possibilities. Could it be the room where the disciples had the Last Supper? Possibly. Strangely enough, Luke actually uses different words for that in the gospel of Luke than he does in Acts. So I'm not so sure it's that upper room. Could it be uh, one of the rooms where the disciples met at the end of the gospel of Luke, in the time between the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Christ? Possibly. Truth is, we just don't know. But the verb that's used here, where they were staying, where they were staying, implies that they were there for some time. They were They were. Hanging out there. They were living there for a little bit of time. They were actually dwelling there in this house, in this upper room for a period of time. We're going to see that this is quite a wealthy house. It's large. Uh, Verse 15 is going to tell us that 120 people could meet there at once. That was a lot back then, and that is a lot today, isn't it? When's the last time you had a a dinner party of 120 people? I'm not sure we have those sorts of things unless it's a wedding or something like that, Right? Now, it was was a a big house, even for back then, but houses back then normally had very large upper rooms. The way that they were constructed, you'd have a lot of rooms down in the first floor, and then those walls, and those rooms were kind of like the living spaces that the people would have, and the walls would actually support one big upstairs room. Sometimes it was open, sometimes it was enclosed, but it was a big upstairs room, and that was the place where people would sometimes sleep in the hotter months. It was a place of entertainment. Most houses had flat roofs and an upper room. Now, as I'm reading this this week, I couldn't help but think about where I started in ministry way, way back when. My parents uh, had a, a large upper room over their garage of the house, and we called it the playroom because originally that's where all of our toys were, so we'd go in there and play and get away from mom and dad. It should have been called the Bible study room because that's really what ended up taking place there. Every Thursday after school, my friends and I would gather together. My parents were gracious enough to open up our home and we would gather together in the upper room to pray together, to read the Bible, and then afterwards to eat some pizza. Uh, My two friends and I, we we just, we desired to start something together. Really, we just wanted to know God's word better. We wanted to know him better. And, And that blossomed into 30, 40 students from five to six different schools in the area, just getting together to hear the word of God and to pray and to eat pizza. Now, the disciples, I don't think they had the pizza, but they had prayer for sure, didn't they? Luke mentions 11 disciples. He starts with Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John are the only disciples we're going to hear by name after this point in the book of Acts. The other ones, they're there, but they're not mentioned by name. They're not uh, forefronted in the story. So he mentions them first, Peter, James, and John, and then he goes through the list of the other ones that are still left alive, and he ends with this guy named Judas. Now, this is not the Judas you think of when you think of Judas. This is the other Judas. This is the Judas, not that betrayed Jesus, but it says Judas, son of James. Uh, Now, The Judas who betrayed Jesus, he's dead by this point. That's why we only have 11 disciples and not 12. Luke gives us this full list of 11. Judas is dead, and that's really the point. This is going to be the driving plot of this part of this chapter in the book of Acts. What do we do with the vacancy in the group of disciples? We were 12, now we are 11. These 11 disciples are gathered together, but they had others with them, didn't they? Luke says in verse 14 that it wasn't just the 11 disciples. They had the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers, meaning Jesus' brothers, or really half-brothers. Remember, um, Jesus was born of Mary and the Holy Spirit, and Mary and Joseph later on had other kids. Joseph, Jesus' not biological dad, but his father, he was probably dead by this time. Church history tells us that Uh, He died before Jesus started his ministry. This is going to be the last time, by the way, in the New Testament that it mentions Mary. She's not a significant figure in the early church beyond this point, but we know she was a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Now Luke says also with them were the women. Again, notice that he writes that with that little article, the word the. The women, not some women, not many women, but the women. Like we know who this group of women should be. A specific known group of women were there with them. Now, who are these people? Well, Luke 8 mentions a group of women who were following Jesus with his disciples. Luke 23 and Luke 24 also mentions them again. This is probably that group of women. Remember, Acts is a sequel to the book of Luke. When we think of Jesus' ministries, uh, we, we oftentimes primarily think of those 12 disciples who were kind of following him around place to place. But what we realize as we read the Gospels is that there was a wider influence uh, that included many, not just men, but also women who would follow Christ and who were known as his disciples, believers. Women had a big role in the early church from the very beginning. We're going to see that in the book of Acts. Now, there was a difference in some roles between men and women. We're going to see that in a minute here too. But any church today that fails to give significant ministry responsibilities to women probably should pick up the Gospels and read it again and probably should pick up the book of Acts and read it again because we're going to see women all over the place in the early church with active responsibilities and significant ministry. I guess this is as good a place as any to mention. Ladies, there's a women's breakfast coming up this Saturday. (laughs) January 20th, 9 o'clock in the morning. Uh, I'm not going to be there because I am not a woman. But I would encourage you to make some time to be there if you can be. Ten bucks a person. That covers your catered breakfast. It covers time of worship through music, fellowship, testimony from your speaker. And I'm told that today is the final day to register. All right, plug is over. We see this gathering of people this gathering of believers in the upper room, 11 remaining disciples. We have Jesus's family. We have women involved in the ministry. And what were they doing? They were praying. They were praying. But Luke doesn't just say praying. He says, with one accord, they were devoting themselves to prayer. Now, two things he emphasizes here. Two things that are helpful for us to consider as we think about what they were doing and applying this passage to our lives. First of all, they were praying in one accord. They were praying with unity. The Greek word behind that phrase, with one accord, it's used 11 times in the New Testament. 10 of those 11 are in the book of Acts. This is a Luke phrase. He wants us to know the early believers were united. They were united in purpose. They were united in prayer. We're going to see in a few weeks, they were united in their resources. They were united in their ministry. They were a united group of believers. I don't know if you've ever been to a church that wasn't united. Maybe this church has gone through periods of time like that. Many churches do. But what a joy it is to be involved in a church that is united around a singular vision. Making disciples who make disciples. We want to be united around the right thing as a church. The early church was united in prayer. What kind of prayer though? This is the second thing I want you to notice with how Luke describes this. They weren't just united in prayer. What kind of prayer? It says they were devoted to prayer. It was a devoted prayer. That phrase is quite a bit stronger in the original language than the English translation shows. They were continually devoted to prayer. Prayer was not just a sporadic thing that they did when they feel they needed something from God. Prayer didn't just happen before they ate their meals or before bedtime. Prayer wasn't just a transitional tool used to fill awkward silence between songs and announcements on a Sunday morning. They were devoted to prayer. It was the primary purpose of their gathering. It was something they were committed to, something they worked hard at. You are going to see something in Acts. Church, I want you to notice this right away, starting right here. Every movement of this book starts with prayer. Every massive work of God in the book of Acts begins with the believers praying. You can go through this book and note how many times Luke mentions the believers pray and then watch what God does right after it. You are going to see a pattern. You know what that means? You want to see our community change for Jesus Christ? Pray. You want to see those missions trips uh, effective this summer? Pray. You want to see your family transformed for Jesus? Pray. You want to see God at work in this church? Pray. And don't just pray, but be continually devoted to it. Continually devoted. Think about the things that you are devoted to right now. Can you imagine what God could do in and through us if we were as devoted to prayer as we are as devoted to our sports? Can you imagine what God could do in and through us if we were as devoted to prayer as we were devoted to our exercise and health? Can you imagine what God can do in and through us if we spent as much time in prayer as we did on our social media? Church, we are missing out because we are not devoted in prayer oftentimes. So pray, church. Be devoted to it. Don't let it just be a thing that happens every now and then, but commit yourself to being on your knees before your Lord. The apostles, Jesus' family, The women, they were all gathered with one mind, one accord, praying, devoted to it, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, waiting for God to fulfill his promises among them. Now, as they pray, at some point, the apostles realized that there was a problem. Look at the text, starting at verse 15. It says, in those days, so in the days that they were waiting and praying, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120 And said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now, Peter, the leader of the apostles, he gets up and he tells this whole community of believers there's something wrong here. Luke says there were about 120 people there in that upper room. So again, big, big house that they're meeting in. This probably means it wasn't just the 11 remaining disciples, Jesus's family and women. There were other men there as well. We're gonna see that in a moment. Now, I I don't want you to make too much of the 120. Uh, It was a lot, and yet it was a little. It was a lot of people to cram in one upper room, even for big houses back then. And yet it was a little amount of people to start a huge worldwide movement that would last 2,000 years later. Some people try to make more of this number than they should, too. They try to think of symbolic ways that this number might be used here. You know, it's 12 times 10, 12 tribes of Israel times 10, and that's like a number of what, I mean, something like that. I've also, I I read that um, synagogues, a Jewish synagogue, in order for it to start in a town, they had to have 120 men in that town, and then they could start a synagogue. Well, that's a nice coincidence, but I don't think that's what Luke is doing here. Uh, mainly because he mentions women, not just men, that are in that 120. And he doesn't even say 120, does he? He says about 120. He's ballparking here. So I think, I think he's just trying to say there were about 120 people up there. No need to spiritualize that or make that a symbolic number or anything like that. But Peter believes there's a problem that does need solving. There is a number that needs to be met. He tells them the scripture had to be fulfilled. It, it had to be It was necessary that the scripture was fulfilled concerning Judas, the guy who guided the soldiers to arrest Christ. Now we're going to see an emphasis throughout Acts, not just on prayer, but on the fulfillment of God's promises. There is a divine plan at work here. Acts is not a book about the efforts of a ragtag group of men and women who tried their best and saw something succeed because of hard work. That's not what this book is about. Acts is about God doing a work through the early church. Unstoppable spirit, unstoppable church. God's work in the church is a work that God began talking about thousands of years before these men were even born. And Peter says those things had to be fulfilled. And that's why Judas did what he did. He says David spoke about Judas. We're going to see in a moment he's going to quote two passages of scripture to back up that claim. Now, before we get there, Peter alludes to the problem in verse 17. He says, Judas was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. In other words, there were 12 of us, apostles. Judas was one of them, and God was the one who chose him. Jesus chose Judas, not the other way around. Judas was one of the 12, and now he's dead, and there's only 11. But notice even the way that Peter phrases this. It emphasizes the divine sovereignty in God choosing Judas. Judas was numbered. He was allotted his share in this ministry. Judas was not a surprise to God. He didn't take Jesus by surprise. He might have taken the other disciples by surprise, but not Jesus. He was part of the plan all along in order to fulfill Scripture. But Peter says, now the man's dead and we've got only 11, and we need 12. Now, before Peter tells us why they needed to find a replacement for Judas, Luke gives us a little reminder of Judas's death. But strangely enough, this reminder kind of sounds unfamiliar if you've read the other Gospels here. So I'm going to read this, and I've got to warn you, there is some graphic stuff in this. It's kind of gross. But you like gross, don't you? Let's read 18 and 19. Now this man, Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that that field was called in their own language, a keldama, that is, field of blood. What a lovely thought on a Sunday morning. Now Luke does not sugarcoat this, does he? So we're not going to sugarcoat this either. First, he tells us that Judas acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. You might remember in the Gospels that Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And then after Jesus was arrested and he's going through his trial, Judas felt so guilt-ridden over that he took those 30 pieces, brought them to the chief priests and elders, and threw them at their feet. And, And the Gospels say that the elders and chief priests took those 30 pieces of silver and they went and bought a field with that blood money. And the people they nicknamed that field the field of blood, a keldama in Aramaic. Now the early church has made many attempts to kind of reconcile the account that Luke gives in Acts with the accounts in the Gospels. Now, you might remember in the Gospels it says that Judas went out and hanged himself, and now it says in Acts that he went out and he burst open like a overinflated water balloon. Gross. There are a lot of different ways to reconcile these things. The most common one that I've heard is that Judas hanged himself on a branch that was kind of over uh, a rocky cliff, and then the branch snapped, and he fell and burst apart on the rocks below. That's certainly possible. There's some antiquity behind that. A lot of the—some of the church fathers talked about that sort of thing. Another intriguing possibility is that that phrase, he fell headlong— you could also translate that phrase, he swelled up. So he's hanging there, he's all, blo- he's all bloated, and, and his body kind of burst open while he's on the rope. Now, either way, it's possible. Luke's focus, though, is not in trying to tell us how do we reconcile this account with the account in the Gospels. His focus is on describing the death of Judas in as graphic way as possible. He's using some language here that's just, quite frankly, disgusting. Now, why is he so graphic? I think it speaks to God's judgment upon Judas. Bad people die in bad ways in the Bible. Bad people die in bad ways in the Bible. Later on in Acts, we're going to read about the death of a a king named Herod, who is struck down by God and eaten by worms. Bad people die in bad ways in the Bible. Even outside of Scripture, there's a guy that they write about in the book of 2 Maccabees. His name is Antiochus. It's another king. Uh, God strikes him down, and I'm going to quote from 2 Maccabees here. You're going to have to bear with me on this one, though. It says, I quote, excruciating pains in his bowels and sharp internal torment, a fit punishment for him who had tortured the bowels of others with many barbarous torments. Now, as anyone who is racked with extreme bowel pain away from home would do, Antiochus then jumps into his chariot and takes off, but he goes so fast that he actually flies out of his chariot, and he lands by the side of the road, and and it says in the book of 2 Maccabees, the body of this impious man swarmed with worms, and while he was still alive in hideous torments, his flesh rotted off so that the entire army was sickened by the stench of his corruption. Ugh. That's a brutal way to go. Now, now I admit there might be some good old-fashioned exaggeration in that description, but the point is there's a theme both in the Bible and in literature outside of the Bible. Bad people die in bad ways. Judas dies in a bad way, guts splashing all over. I mean, you get the picture. We don't have to say much more about it, do we? This is Luke's way of saying God judged this man. God judged him. Now, what's all this got to do with Peter and the other surviving disciples? What he does now is he applies scripture to this situation. Look at verse 20. This is Peter speaking again. He says, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So Peter quotes two different psalms here. He quotes Psalm 69, verse 25, and he quotes Psalm 109, verse 8. These two psalms, they share quite a bit in common. There's a lot of overlap between them. Both psalms were written by King David. Both psalms, in both psalms, David is being persecuted to the point of his life being in in danger. There are ungodly men persecuting him for his righteousness. And he begins both psalms with a prayer for deliverance. God, save me. And then somewhere in the middle, he transitions to praying for justice upon his enemies. Specifically, he asks God, judge these people who are persecuting me. He prays that his enemies would get what they deserve. Now, in the context of both of those, that's when he says those verses that you see on the screen. David prays, God, judge my enemies. Psalm 69, 25. Then he says, may their camp be a desolation. Let no one in, dwell in their tents. Peter takes that verse that David used about the enemies of God, and Peter applies it specifically to Judas. He applies a general prayer of the psalm to a specific individual. Same thing with Psalm 109, verse 8. May his days be few. May another take his office. Peter indicates that this principle is applied not just to David's enemies, but to Judas as well. So he's quoting these Psalms in the spirit of the Psalms, but he sees an equivalence between the enemies of David and the enemy of Jesus, the betrayer of Jesus. He sees an equivalence there. Just like when you read the Psalms, sometimes the the authors of the New Testament read them and they realize that David prefigured or anticipated a greater reality in Jesus to come. Well, so did David's enemies. Anticipate a greater reality in Judas to come. And because of this, Peter reads these scriptures and he believes we need another apostle. The 11 must become 12. Now, before we read about how they made that decision, I've got to mention this. There are a lot of people who look at this text and they debate whether or not the apostles made the right decision. Should they have chosen another one or should they have waited for God to do it through the apostle Paul? Was Paul Judas's correct replacement? And I'll say this, that's an interesting thought, but I don't see it at all found in this text. You're not going to find anywhere in the book of Acts any hint that the apostles did something wrong here. In fact, I'm going to point to a verse at the very end of this chapter that indicates this was indeed the right decision. I'll point it out when it comes up in the text, but let's follow along. Verse 21, now Peter, what he does is he gives the criteria. Who are we looking for to fill this position? Let's take a look. This is Peter still talking. He says, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So church, you want to call yourself an apostle? Everyone stand up for a minute. Stand up. I know you're not used to exercise at this point in the sermon, Let's see how many apostles we have here according to what Peter says. I see two main qualifications he gives here, two main qualifications. First of all, you have to be male. Peter says one of the men, and he actually uses a Greek word that's referring to only males, not females. So I see we've already done it. Females have sat down. That eliminates about half of us in this room. Second qualification, he says you have to have accompanied the other apostles from the time of John the Baptist until the day of Jesus' resurrection. (laughs) I'm out too. So the office of apostle was reserved for men who had been in the ministry from the beginning and lasted in that ministry all the way through Christ's resurrection and even saw him ascend up to heaven. That is none of us in this room, myself included. Now, every now and then, you see churches out there who call their leaders apostles. But I'm not so sure that's a helpful or even a biblical title to apply to somebody today. Though the term apostle literally means the sent-off one or one who is sent... It's not the same as being a pastor or even as being a missionary. This was a title that was reserved for special select group of men in the early church. Unless that you can claim that you are a man who is with Jesus from the time of John the Baptist until the time of his ascension, I'm not so sure that we should call ourselves apostles. Now, later on in Acts, we're going to meet a guy named Paul who calls himself an apostle. In fact, Jesus calls him an apostle. But he was not with Jesus from the time of his baptism to his ascension. But Paul himself admits that he's a unique case. He's the exception that proves the rule. First Corinthians 15, he calls himself one untimely born. In fact, he says, last of all, I am one untimely born. Christ appeared to me as one untimely born. Last of all, meaning there are no others like me after this. So Peter lays out the criteria. They examine all 120 people with them, and who do they come up with? Let's read the rest of this chapter, verse 23 on. And they put forward two, Joseph, called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, "'You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, "'show which one of these two you have chosen "'to take the place in this ministry "'and apostleship from which Judas turned aside "'to go to his own place.'" and they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So two men are proposed. Two men are qualified. Joseph, who apparently had a couple of nicknames, Barsabbas, Justice, and a man named Matthias, who apparently didn't have any nicknames. Now this is interesting to me. When you read this, 120 people in the room, who did not make the cut? Think about this. Who else was in that room that Luke has mentioned that did not make this cut? The brothers of Jesus. His brothers were in that room. James, Jude, men who seem like they might have been qualified, except John 7, 5 tells us that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him until after his resurrection. So it took them a while to see that their brother was anything more than just an older brother. Only Joseph and Matthias are qualified. They're put forward. Well, what do you do when you have two qualified people and only one position open? Well, apparently you cast lots. But before you do that, you pray again. Once again, a watershed moment here. A 12th apostle has to be chosen. And what do they do? They stop everything and they pray. They put the decision in the Lord's hands. You, Lord, you know the hearts of all people. Show us which one of these two you have chosen, God. They clearly believe this is God's decision. They totally rely on the sovereign decision of God in this matter. In fact, the form of the verb that they use here in this prayer, you have chosen, that's a completed past action with ongoing results. Lord, you have already decided this. Show us what you have decided. Church, that should be the posture of every prayer that we pray. Lord, you know who you have already chosen as the pastor of community life for Riverstone Church. Show us, please. Lord, you've already decided whether you're going to heal my loved one. We pray for healing, but show us what you've decided. Lord, you've made this decision in eternity past. Please be so gracious to reveal it to us now. We are not demanding anything from the Lord when we pray. We're not commanding God anything. He's not a genie in a bottle. We are appealing to him based on his sovereign decision. Now notice in this prayer, they throw a little shade at Judas too, don't they? They pray for a replacement to take his place in the ministry and apostleship from which he turned aside to go to his own place. His own place. That's the opposite of where they're going to go. Sometimes I get questions, uh, people wonder, is Judas going to be in heaven? No need to wonder. His own place isn't our place, and it's not God's place. His own place is a euphemism for hell. So they pray, they ask God to act, then they cast lots, which was kind of like an ancient way of of flipping a coin or pulling a name out of a hat, except God ordained that method as a means to discern his will. If you read through Proverbs, Proverbs 16 says this, the lot cast in the lap is free or the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Casting lots was one way of, of discerning what does God want us to do in this situation. Another proverb, chapter 18, says this, the lot puts an end to quarrels and decides between powerful contenders. Now, if I can be brutally frank with you, I've been involved in a lot of churches where I kind of wish this is what we did for leadership elections. Unfortunately, some churches have turned leadership elections into a political popularity contest. Got two positions open, we've got five candidates, and then the ones with the most votes, they get that spot. I don't know about you, but that always bothered me. Sometimes the -the behind-the-scenes servants are, are the best and most qualified leaders, not the ones with the most family connections or the ones with the most name recognition. Sometimes the most qualified elder is not the most known elder. Now, Acts is going to have a lot more to say about church government as the book unfolds, but here what we see is two qualified men are there. So they cast lots, and they ask God to help determine. I actually know of at least one church, a very big, famous church with a big, famous pastor who does this for their leadership elections. They have a set number of seats open. Let's say they've got three spots open, and they've got maybe six qualified candidates. Well, instead of having a popularity vote, they actually put the names in a hat, pray to God, and they draw out three. It's your decision, Lord. Now, I think I'd prefer that to a popularity contest, but that brings up another good point that I think we need to make right here in this book. Is this process in Acts 1 meant to be a model for the church's decision-making process? That kind of question is going to come up again and again in this book. Throughout any narrative of the Bible, Old Testament or New Testament that you read, we have to ask the question, are descriptive narratives meant to be prescriptive models for the church? We've got to be very careful here. We see a lot of things described in the Bible that aren't necessarily given to us as commands for us to do too. Just the other day in my devotions, I was reading about a really strong guy who got really angry And he went and caught 300 foxes, tied them together two by two, set their tails on fire, and let them burn down a field. Now, I didn't come away from that text and say, this is God's command for me and how to deal with my enemies. A couple chapters before that, I read about a guy who put a fleece outside of his door and asked God to make the fleece wet and the ground dry to figure out whether God wanted him to do the thing that God already told him to do. And then when God does that, he goes and he does it again the next day with the fleece dry and the ground wet. Is that a model for Christian behavior? Probably not. In fact, at that point in the text, the guy was an example of unfaithfulness. So I'm not so sure that we're supposed to read Acts 1 and say, this is how we make all church decisions. Now, can we do this? I guess so. I, I don't think that that one church I mentioned is necessarily in sin, But I don't think this was meant for us as the only model for how to do it. This is the last time in the Bible we see believers casting lots. Last time right here. Because what happens in the next chapter? The Holy Spirit descends upon the church. And after that, no more lots are cast because now we have the Spirit of God directing us. Now again, I don't know if a Christian is wrong to resort to a f- coin flip or pulling names out of a hat. We're going to go out to eat after church and um, my family always has to figure out where are we going to go and sometimes we flip the coin. That way it's God's fault and not dad's fault. And <laughs> <right? laughs> we've got to be careful with these sorts of things in Acts. I, I say this here because you're going to see things happen in this book that maybe don't necessarily always happen in today's church. And we have to ask questions like, Does the narrator mean for this to be a repeated occurrence for us every day? Or do we see other texts of scripture encouraging this or commanding this too? We actually see a lot of different methods of choosing leaders, even within the book of Acts. We'll point them out as we go. Just like we see different methods of evangelism, just like we see different methods of missions and ministry. But here the narrator does say something about the casting of lots. Notice that last line. It says, the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, this is what I was referring to before. This, I think, is a clear indication from the narrator that this decision to choose another apostle was the right thing to do. It's not just Peter who says it. The narrator himself says it. It's a way of affirming everything Peter just said. They're 12 again. And that's where we're going to leave it off this morning. The 12th disciple has been chosen by God. 120 believers are gathered together for prayer, expecting God to work, and that we can say for sure is something we are commanded to model. It's something, prayer, that we see over and over again in Scripture. It's something that God commands of us over and over in Scripture. Matthew chapter 6, don't pray like the hypocrites do, bringing up many words. Romans chapter 12, we should be devoted to prayer. Ephesians chapter 6, pray at all times in the spirit. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, pray continually, and so on and so on. So church, pray. Pray together. Pray by yourself. Be devoted to the Lord in prayer. Before we do just that, Let me take a moment and offer you two resource recommendations, two books on prayer that I have found especially helpful for me in my life. I might have recommended this first one before. It doesn't help or doesn't hurt to repeat it, though. Praying with Paul by D.A. Carson, theologically rich, practical, convicting. Uh, Tom Allen recommended this to me over 20 years ago. I've read it multiple times. One of the best books I've ever read outside of Scripture. I would highly encourage you to pick this up and to challenge your prayer life. Secondly, A Praying Life by Paul Miller. Super practical, down-to-earth, great recommendations and suggestions for people who sometimes struggle with prayer. Maybe you're reading this and you're saying, I'm not so sure I'm devoted to prayer. I pray sometimes, but what does it mean to be devoted to? Here's a couple of good books to help you get started in the right direction. Now, there's a lot that we can learn from these early believers. Let's take a page out of their book and close this service in prayer. Our sovereign God, we recognize your decision-making process in our life. Anything we pray, Lord, you have already decided, and yet we submit ourselves to you, and we ask that you would do a work in and through us. Help us to be a community of devoted believers praying together praying to you, Lord. May every movement of this church begin with prayer so that we know it is not our own efforts that we give glory to, but you. And Lord, I pray that you would hear our prayers even this morning. Do a great work in these mission trips coming up. Do a great work in the ministries that we have here. Do a great work in this church and the lives of these people even today. We thank you, Lord. We praise you for the spirit of God among us. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless. Be devoted to prayer this week.